Spring turkey season is upon us, and don't be caught out in the woods without having Onyx Hunt on your phone. One feature Onyx has that is often overlooked for turkey hunting is their recent imagery filter with their elite memberships. This imagery is updated week to week, and it comes in extremely handy, especially when you're trying to find these gobble zones where these turkeys will go out in a high spot on a fresh clear cut and strut around all day long. Actually, I was just looking at on Onyx where, where the timber company just came into Andrew's club and did a very small clear cut along this creek, and I can see the high spots on the topographical map, but also I can see exactly where they mulch, and those are going to be hot spots for finding gobblers, especially mid-morning after they get off their hens, getting up on these little high spots in this fresh, small clear cut along the creek and strutting and gobbling all day long. If you want to give Onyx a try, you can actually download it for free, try it for seven days, and if you decide to purchase, you can use the promo code SOUTHERN and save on your premium and elite memberships. So go into this turkey season, know where you stand with Onyx. Well, guys, we have some exciting news for you from Vortex about their brand new eyewear, their Banshee and Jackal sunglasses. Me and Andrew have had these for a few weeks now, right before the release, and we've been extremely impressed. They're awesome glasses, guys. And listen, if you're needing some new sunglasses, not only do they have the VIP warranty, but they're tough as crap, guys. Uh, Scratch-resistant eyewear, uh, it's extremely important. And also, they have safety features as well. So when you're out shooting at the range, again, these are rated glasses, so you are going to be more than protected when you're at the range. But they also look fantastic when you're out around town. So right now, Vortex has some special pricing on their website, which is vortexoptics.com for the new eyewear. But also, if you use the code SOUTHERN20, you get to save even more on this special pricing for right now at vortexoptics.com. Again, check out the new eyewear from vortexoptics.com and use the promo code SOUTHERN20 to save on their brand new eyewear. If you live in the Gulf Coast region, you need to find yourself at the Eco Wild Expo May 10th through the 12th in Mobile. It is the premier outdoor expo for the Gulf Coast region, and we're going to be there. We're going to have a booth. We're super excited about it. Can't wait to meet you guys that live down there. We absolutely love the Gulf Coast region, so to be a part of this show, we're super excited about. We're going to have past podcast guests there at our booth for you to talk to, guys who are relevant for your area, who you can talk to, you can pick their brain, you can joke with them, laugh with them, tell them your story, whatever you want to do. It's going to be a awesome time. We're already working on some past podcast guests, but hey, if you live in this area and you have a suggestion for someone you want to see at that show, write in and we'll see if we can get them. There's going to be all kinds of exhibitors at the show that are focused on hunting, fishing, conservation, and recreation. There's going to be activities for the whole family there. They got axe throwing, archery. They're going to have our podcast booth. And then for the kids, they got touch tanks, a honeybee exhibition, a raptor show, kids fishing tank, BB gun range, and a butterfly house. So you're going to love it. Your kids are going to love it. It's going to be an awesome time. So head on over to ecowildexpo.com to get more information on the show and to go ahead and grab your tickets. And hey, mark it on your calendar, May 10th through the 12th. Be there. We want to see you and we're excited to talk to you. So we'll see you at the EcoWild Expo this May 10th through the 12th at the Mobile Convention Center in Mobile, Alabama. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. 
For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. What is up, everybody? Me and Jacob are here doing another intro before our main episode, and we're very excited because guess what? We're going to be deer hunting in two weeks, Jacob? That'll be correct. You are right about that. Uh, it's it's going to be very exciting, man. First time ever hunting uh, whitetails in August. Ooh, I'm excited. Oh, man, I'm excited. I cannot wait to get in a tree stand this year, dude. Oh, I have. I don't think I've ever been so pumped up about a deer season. Yeah, guys, uh, I know all of our listeners are pretty excited as well. You know, been speaking with quite a bit of y'all uh, the last couple of days on just you know who you know who's getting excited for this fall, who's kind of got a good game plan going into it, and it seems like, of course, you know, this time of year everyone's getting just jacked up, ready to go for the season. You know, you put in a lot of work, whether you know you've been around trail cameras, getting out scouting a whole bunch lately you know, hanging stands or just getting your fine tuning your setups right now. And just everybody's ready to go. I know, you know, it's just like, we're just kind of waiting for that first day. And then from there, it's going to be the the whole marathon of the season, but it's going to be an absolute blast. Oh yeah, man. We've been waiting all summer for it and it's been a long, hot, humid wait. Oh yeah. I know you're right about that, dude. And depending on what part of the country you're in, you know, you may or may not be getting a lot of rain and it seems like there's a couple of areas Looks like they're having a little EHD breakout uh, in the south, which is kind of a kind of rough to see, but you know it is what it is. Um, but man, let's, let's kind of jump straight into this, uh, guys. On this week's episode, you know we we have Cuz Strickland on. It's, and it's a, had an absolute blast talking to him again. Uh, Cuz is a great guy. Love speaking with him. Um, you know, definitely just a just a lot of knowledge that he has, and he's super relatable uh, for me. Once ever watching of his stuff or you know seeing him throughout the years, I mean he's just a guy that's very very relatable um but you know i had an absolute blast with him on this week uh just talking on the podcast but you know y'all will hear about that in a minute but before that me and andrew got kind of catch up on what we've been up to lately uh and i know if you guys have been following especially on instagram you probably have seen especially what andrew's been up to along with what i've been up to in this last week or so so i'll, I'll kind of i guess you know hit it first since uh, my scouting trip started a little bit earlier in yours but uh Definitely, once I got this new camera in, uh, this Canon XA11, definitely had to get it all set up and everything and went out on a scouting trip. And, dude, I saw, I think it was 30, 35 deer, I think in one afternoon. How, uh, how, between, many, how many bucks? Uh, three or four shooters. Uh, that's the nice. only ones that, that I really picked out. I, I mean, there were some smaller bucks, but I didn't really count those. You know, some just, you know, yearling bucks, you know, just, just getting their first set of uh, antlers for their year. But um, definitely just saw a bunch of does, which is good because, you know, where the does are going to be at come uh, November is going to be very, very helpful <laughs> for me. But, uh, yeah, definitely found just some really, really good bucks, man. Uh, you know, Scott, who's two. You on beans? Hmm? Are, are you on soybeans where you're finding yeah, was, those bucks? Yeah, so find, finding on soybeans. And the thing is, you know, like most people know, if you've ever hunted around beans or know anything about soybeans, you know, but most, unless you're hunting in Kentucky, or I guess Georgia as well. Uh, you know, most of the season's coming late enough that 
the beans are probably going to be turned yellow by then, unless you find some really, really late, uh, late planted beans, which we found some, uh, which are probably right now only about knee high, which is perfect. But, uh, you know, they're definitely going to turn off the beans, but the beans are a great way or a great place to go find a lot of these bucks and just kind of get an inventory of which, what's going to be in your area. And you got to realize, which, you know, you and me both kind of understand this, that, you know, those bucks have, you know, their summer patterns in their, your, their fall ranges, winter ranges. And, uh, you know, some of them could stay the same or close to the same and some will be totally different. So one thing I kind of was looking at after finding all these bucks on, you know, this one portion of this property was kind of looking at, you know, a mile or two from there where these bucks could relocate at. And I've got a couple different spots. I'm definitely want to check out and uh, see, see what it's looking like. Cause I think come, you know, mid to October, mid to late October, that's where those bucks are going to be is, you know, a couple miles from where I'm seeing them now. But uh, definitely was super, super productive. You know, saw a bunch of deer, uh, got out clean, um, and really got me excited for this year. Uh, you know, saw a really, really good wide eight-point. It was probably, he might only be, I didn't see his full body. I wasn't able to see how deep his chest was. But looking, you know, top half of his body, you know, he's he's probably three and a half years old, but just a really, really good frame on the deer. Is that the, uh, main, is that the main one that you posted? Like he's kind of walking to the right, and then he, like, turns and looks at the camera? Yeah, it's it's that deer. Okay. And yeah, he's a you stud, know, man. Yeah, he's he's a deer that if anyone on this public parcel gets a chance to shoot him, he will get shot this year, or at least get shot at. Um, <laughs> I mean, even by me. I mean, he comes by me. That deer is going to get at least an arrow uh, slung at him uh, within reasonable distance. But you know, I saw a couple other bucks that night. Uh, one was a tight or tighter rack, uh, ten point. You know, still probably, you know, 14, 15 inches wide, uh, but definitely, you know, a really, really, really good deer. Uh, and then there was this a super tall main beam buck. Um, couldn't count all the times on him. I was, I was messing around with some settings on my on my camera, and he was about 400 yards out in the soybean fields right last light. So didn't get the clearest video of him, but his main beams are just super tall, just super tall. I mean, they just sweep straight up and curl out. And, uh, you know, definitely looks like a really good deer, really good size body on them. Uh, so that's got me kind of excited. And also jumped a cubby of quail, too, <laughs> which is, uh, oh, man, that scared the heck out of you. Uh, plus, <laughs> that's that's only the second time I've ever ran, run into quail in the wild, which is pretty cool. But, yeah, scared the absolute mess out of me. Um, and that's pretty much it. I mean, other than that, I've been, uh, went and checked out on the private parcel. Uh, we're gonna be hunting this year for this velvet hunt. Uh, check that oh, out. Oh yeah, so. yeah. So that that's where we're gonna be in two weeks. I was I was gonna ask you about that. Have y'all put any mock scrapes out or put out any cameras or anything? Yeah. So we put out one mock scrape. Uh, it's, it's around the boundary line, but the reason why there's a lot of old bucks on a lot of old rubs right there on, on that uh, boundary, right which. Yeah, so, I, you know, there's definitely a lot of deer working through right there. So I got a camera on that. We put a total of three cameras out in that property. And the property is only like 42 acres, but it was an old cattle farm. Um, so, that, you know, there's a, a lot of pasture laying on it. It's all overgrown now, you know, CRPs and just a bunch of uh, greenbrier with uh, some blackberries mixed in with it. Uh, great deer habitat, absolutely phenomenal deer habitat. Uh, there's a couple. There's a pond on the property along with a, a, a natural spring, um, so that's super beneficial uh, having water right there. Um, but saw. Did you, did you I, check any oak trees? Yes, there was one. Actually, okay, two I found that had some on there. Not counting the giant one. There, there's an oak tree dude that is right behind the barn on the property. 
not, you know, 200 yards in the house. That is one of the biggest oak trees I've ever seen. I mean, it would take eight, probably eight guys to be able to reach all the way around this tree. But um, it, it was loaded, absolutely loaded. But, again, it's right behind the right behind the barn. I mean, you could set up in the barn maybe shoot a deer, uh, which, who, I mean, I have nothing against that, you know, as long as it's a uh, – as long as it's a good deer come through there but you know put three cameras out uh, on it put one down by the pond there's a big travel corridor right there a couple different trails came together but one camera there i think it's a really good spot um i'm thinking that you're going to see more you know evening shots there i don't know if you're going to see much uh, during the day right there around the pond but you know then again i've never been on the property and seen a lot of deer around the pond so we'll see what that turns out to and they had a couple other cameras set up uh, one on the mock scrape and then one on another big trail crossing uh, on the north side of that ridge so i, I think it's going to be a really good property i again i haven't seen any bucks on the property just while scouting out there which i mean i'd kind of be surprised if i did and kind of walk up and bump one but bumped a bunch of does a bunch of does on the property but um we'll, we'll see what these cameras uh, turn up i'm going to try to track them oh probably this week this coming weekend and just trying to see real quick on what's happening if, if nothing has really happened i'll kind of move some cameras around just to try to get a better idea of uh you know if there is any bucks on the property for this hunt so yeah dude that sounds awesome man um i'm pumped man i cannot wait to start filming for that because um i'm gonna be if anybody doesn't know then i'm I'm gonna be traveling up to tennessee that week and i'm gonna be filming jacob so i won't have a bow in my hand but it'll probably feel just about as good because i'm ready to be in a tree stand brother yeah man you can uh, shoot a deer with a camera so that's all that matters hey that's I'll, fine with I'll, me yeah, I mean, I'm excited for that this fall. I mean, all these different hunts that we get kind of planned, um, especially that elk hunt and that Kentucky elk hunt is going to be absolutely awesome. Oh, uh, man. Oh, yes. So I'll definitely probably be taking off work for that just to be able to go out and film that hunt. But anyways, I mean, yeah, definitely got a lot of stuff planned, and this fall is going to be absolutely just crazy. I mean, super busy, but it's going to be an absolute blast, especially on some of these public land parcels that uh, I've been scouting lately. I mean, looks looks absolutely phenomenal but yeah. enough about enough about me i kind of rambled on for a little long let's talk about a little bit about you and your scouting trip you've had that freaking turned out a ton of different bucks man it was <laughs> it looked awesome yeah so the other day um so i went to north carolina like last weekend for two days to for my fiance's family reunion and on the way up there, we were passing some stuff, um, a couple different public parcels, just driving through the state of, uh, driving through Alabama, that is, and actually um, a little bit through Tennessee. So I got some uh, other places on my list, but I don't have a Tennessee license this year. But anyway, we passed some places in Alabama where I was like, man, I'd really like to check that out. So uh, long story short, um, our friends at Southern Ground uh, reached out to them because I know that they hunt up in that area. And our buddy Michael Pike uh, had actually hunted on one of those places before. So I reached out to him and Parker and I was like, hey, do y'all want to go scout this place? And uh, unfortunately, Parker wasn't able to make it and neither were you, Jacob. But So me and Michael went out there by ourselves and uh, went up to this place. Um, he was on it last year and hunted a little bit. He shot a buck but couldn't find it, and he killed a doe uh, and did find it and recover it and everything. Um, but anyways, we get up there, and there's a few different parcels that we're wanting to look at. And uh, so we get there, and we're, like, driving around, kind of scouting access. There's actually a fair amount of corn and soybeans on this place, which I've never in my life hunted around agriculture at all everything i've ever done has been like swamps or hardwood ridges or stuff like that so totally new setting to me but it was really really cool to 
to get in the soybeans and get in the cornfields and walk walk around and like find the sign in there just because it's so different man the deer movement's so concentrated like we we found trails that i mean they just look like cattle trails we found no, one no, no. trail those I was going to say, no, they, they, no, they, they looked like sidewalks. That's how I described it to a couple different people. Those pictures you sent me, because I found some pretty big trails lately on some public land, biggest ones I've ever seen, and yours made mine look tiny. I mean, they looked like sidewalks with deer it, tracks. It, we, it, was it was insane. unbelievable. We were freaking out. But anyways, that's not even the best part. So we're getting in there, and we've been on the place for like 45 seconds, and we see two little bucks come out of this tree line, and filter out into the soybean field and they're eating and there's a fair amount of beans on the public here and they're on public land so we're like okay cool you know this is this is a good start and michael had his nice camera um we were filming some of it for the southern ground youtube and um we we start working back into this parcel and we get like a mile because all these gates are locked we get like a mile or a mile and a half from the truck and it just starts dumping rain and so we're like well we're gonna get wet whatever so we get out of the fields and we kind of dunk in the wood line a little bit and we're gonna go scout around these creeks where they kind of meander past these fields and uh we're we're walking and there's a a couple fields back in there um that are kind of hidden from the roads i guess a little bit they're a little bit harder to access and then there's a few little thick areas and uh, we decide to walk the edge in one of these little thicker areas that's in this otherwise pretty open swamp. So that's something that me and you have talked about a fair bit, like kind of finding the anomaly. And the, the anomaly was that thick area. You know, everything else was pretty open. You could see a long ways to that swamp, and it was real flat. So we're like, well, let's walk the edge of this and find some trails coming out of it and mark them. So we're walking the edge of it, and boom, here's a big 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 nice deer trail coming out of it but nothing like what we were about to find so we're excited and uh we decide to cut through the middle of it and right when we start cutting through the rain gets like real hard and it's like hard to hear and everything and um we get in the middle of this thick area and it's like real grassy it's like chest high grass and we were walking through there and michael tapped me on the shoulder and he was like man this is the kind of place where we we walk right up on a deer because they're not gonna be able to hear us or anything we get just on the outside of that thick stuff and we're walking down the other side of it now and we're uh, right on the creek bank basically michael looks across the creek and boom there's a big buck standing right there he uh he didn't have many points i think he's a mainframe six but man he is tall and he was wide he was he was a very very impressive deer he's definitely bigger than anything i've ever shot and uh dude this deer just stands there and just looks at us for like five minutes and so we got some pretty cool footage of him, which uh, hopefully will be released pretty soon. And uh, maybe maybe by the time this drops, I don't know. But, uh, yeah, we got some pretty cool footage of him. He sat there for a little while. Michael, we were moving around and everything, and he just, like, couldn't figure out what we are uh, or what we were. I don't know what was going on. But eventually he turns around and runs off, and, man, me and Michael are just freaking out. We're like, I cannot believe that just happened. We just walked up on a great buck like that. And then we're back there, man, and – there's these huge trail crossings that are going across the creek. They're just worn down. I mean, they look like beaver trails. They're so bad. I mean, I haven't, I have not come across sign that heavy in anywhere else I've ever been, like ever. I mean, I, I couldn't believe it. But uh, anyways, we, after we see that buck, we start moving through the woods again down the edge of this thick area, and this thick area on the southern part of it, there's a, like a little bit of a point, I guess you could say. Um, 
and we're working down towards it, just kind of looking for more trails, maybe some scrapes, some rubs. And Michael turns around to me, he's like, man, I got a feeling we're about to see something else. We need to get my camera out. And so we, we walk like five more yards and we look up and there's another buck standing there. And we get down on our knees and we're like kind of trying to hide from him. And then we realize that it wasn't one buck. It was like, I think eight or nine bucks. I've had some people watch the footage and say it was 12. Uh, I don't know what it is, but man, there's a whole bunch of them. And one of them was huge. He was just as big as the first one. Just big, clean, mainframe eight point, way outside the ears, beautiful buck. And then uh, I think two or three of them were just some more great eight points. I think actually one of them was a 10. And then there's one that's like real tight, and he's an eight point, but he's got like fat antler. He's real palmated. Um, and his bases, man, I don't know how big his bases are. And of course, velvet adds a little bit, but still, I mean, he was very impressive. And he was one of the smaller body deer, so he was, he was younger. So I'm interested to see what he turns into if he makes it through this season. But uh, yeah, they, they stay in front of us for like 10 minutes, and we're just filming them, like having the time of our lives. And finally, they move away. And we go to basically where they came from, and that's where we started finding those like sidewalk trails, as you were calling them. Yeah, I mean, dude, it was, oh man, it, it, that was awesome. I mean, just watching that footage and you like I, me calling you after y'all had uh, come back and grabbed some dinner, or I guess a late lunch, maybe. Dude, it, that just sounded awesome. And then you started showing me some footage, and I was like, man, that is going to be just. A, it's going to be a really good hunt, especially for the time we'll, we'll be there trying to get that done. But real quick, before we kind of wrap this up, explain a little bit more about, you know, when y'all were on that property, I mean, what were y'all kind of looking for to be able to find that deer sign? I mean, was it that just relevant or was it were they around a certain terrain feature or something like that where those deer were kind of honed in on? So, like I said, I'm like, uh, I'm very inexperienced when it comes to like agricultural areas and all that. Um so Michael was really leading the way throughout most of that. Um, of course, we were like working together, figuring things out, but he definitely knew the property better than I did. And uh, we get back in there, and you know, it's just like a bunch of soybean fields and a bunch of corn fields, and it's like I I don't know where to start really. So our plan was to kind of find where there might be some funnels in the woods, because you know, everybody once season opens up. You know, everybody's going to be on those on those fields, you know, regardless of uh, if they're yellow by then or not, which a lot of those beans were very young, so they might not be yellow by that time. But, um, excuse me. Um, yeah, we were just trying to get off the beaten path, I guess. So what we keyed in on was these creeks. There's a lot of creeks that kind of meander through that place, and it's very flat and very swampy. Um, we were trying to find places where those creeks caused pinch points, which could be between two creeks. It could be between a creek and a pasture or a creek and a field or just anything like that. Or, uh, or like a, where, let's see, well, the best, the best spot that we found was between a field and a little ditch that you couldn't see on the map. And the ditch was holding a little bit of water. And for whatever reason, the deer were just kind of funneling around it. And that's where we found those really big, quote-unquote, sidewalk trails. And those trails came out of the, the field and crossed the creek and went into another field. And it was just, like, wore down, man. Like, I, I thought it – Michael was like, dude, this is a beaver trail. I was like, I don't know, dude. And so we, we followed it up into the thick area, and uh, 
sure enough, it wasn't a beaver trail. There was nothing nipped off in there or anything. And then um, we found a couple oaks in there that looked good. So that was another thing was we were looking for any kind of white oak trees that were in there. Because once those beans do yellow, you know, those deer are going to be on those oaks. They'll probably still be on them if the greens are, I mean, if the soybeans are still green. But, dude, it was pretty hard to find white oaks in there. So that was a little bit of a bust trying to find oak trees because most of it was um, was like sweet gum and uh, sycamore and hickory. There wasn't a whole lot of oak trees in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, another thing, kind of what you kind of talked about, which is something that I've been focused on, is trying to find, which you didn't word it like this, but it's kind of like what you were talking about, is trying to find some of these things that are more subtle that really don't stand out, especially on a map. Because, guys, if you're looking at a map, this, especially you're hunting public land, if you're looking at a map and something instantly jumps out at your eye, um, it's probably jumping out at you know to a lot more people as well. Uh, so yeah. one thing that we, me, both me and Andrew, have had success with is looking for these subtle things, okay? Stuff that you cannot maybe see on a map, but you know you find something in this area that kind of looks good, but you know you're not too sure about it. Put boots on the ground, and you find something subtle, terrain feature, or something like that ditch that you would not normally see from a uh, topography map or aerial photo. And that right there is going to be something that, you know, will hopefully funnel some deer around there that you'll be able to, you know, get a good pinch point. And that's one thing that I talked about uh, to, to actually one of our listeners, Nick. Uh, we were over at his house actually shooting the bows and everything. We were talking about the podcast and he was talking about how he enjoyed it. And, you know, we talked about public land hunting and he was asking me, you know, what, what are we looking for on public land? And I, I told him, you know, the number one thing that we do is try to find these subtle things. I mean, that's how we kind of find that one spot back on uh, that you know, piece of property back in Alabama, central Alabama, is try to find something very subtle that most people aren't going to see or something that looks kind of uh, kind of out of the ordinary, something that's maybe a little bit different from everything else. And that's where you're going to find a lot of deer. And that's one thing that we've found because you kind of get away from people. You know, no matter where you're going to go, you're going to find somebody most of the time. But you're going to get away from a lot of that hunting pressure and you're going to find where those deer are really congregating. So definitely those subtle aspects is something that you definitely key on on, which, again, you won't Amen. find most of that. Yeah, you won't again, but you won't find a lot of that until you put boots on the ground. You might see some of it on maps, which I have. I look for certain subtle things on maps that uh, a lot of people it might turn away a lot of people, or the, they might not be the biggest fans of hunting around it. But uh, I've had tons of success around certain things, which I might not talk about in this episode because I don't want to give away my secrets right now. But uh, <laughs> but uh, anyways, it, it's just one of those things that find the subtle things, find stuff that might turn other people off. And that's where you're going to find a lot of deer and a lot of times a lot less hunting pressure, but. Amen, dude. Well, yeah. So with that, let's, this is kind of a long episode. We've, we've ran pretty long in this intro, but we'll toss it over. But before we do, uh, thanks everybody for the new reviews. There's been a couple new reviews on our iTunes and we really, really appreciate that man. And like, honestly, by no means we're, <laughs> we're not, we're not experts at any of this stuff. We're just, Two guys who've made a lot of mistakes so far, still have a lot of mistakes to make. There's a lot of people out there who are better at this stuff than we are uh, as far as hunting goes, and um, we're just we're just enjoying the ride, and we're hoping y'all are learning with us because, you know, every year is a, a giant learning curve that we got to overcome, so I know that me and Jacob are both trying some new stuff, but uh, really from the bottom of our hearts, thank you guys for those reviews, those... Uh, those really do mean a lot, man. We love reading them, and we greatly, greatly appreciate it. Yeah, exactly, and it's one of those things that no matter how good you are at anything, you never need to stop learning because the second you stop learning, that's when your your knowledge and everything else is going to 
uh, hinder and fall off. So, you know, it's one thing that I love to do. No matter how, you know, good you are at, at, you know, when it comes to woodsmanship and hunting and stuff, the more you can learn from other aspects of people, you know, the better after you're going to be. That's one thing I've loved about podcasts. I've learned so much from other guys too that we've listened to, you know, in the past and even in the present that have taught me so much stuff that I've really applied and it's really helped me out. And again, we're just trying to have a resource like that for you guys that's, you know, tuning in uh, for something that maybe, Maybe you didn't know about, but maybe you want to try something different and see how it works for you. Exactly. Especially, well, especially like, you know, us and our mobile hunting setups. I mean, doing something different like that, that a lot of people aren't necessarily used to doing uh, is, is something that's definitely a game changer. But yeah, man, anyways. I mean, podcasts were so big for me and like a lot of my stuff I listen to is Midwestern and you can take a lot of Midwestern tactics and apply it to the South, but they're just wasn't anything out there for the South and podcasts really, really, really helped me a lot. I mean, they, like, I, I, I wouldn't be near the hunter I am today without podcasts just because it, it gives you so many new ideas. Like I've gotten so many new ideas and techniques that I've tried and made my own from podcasts. It's just, um, it really shortens the learning curve. And so that's one of the main reasons that we wanted to start this is to help other people because, you know, I can just picture someone else who is in my position, you know, I was, I used to really struggle on public land and honestly podcasts and good YouTube channels that were educational and informative really helped me out, man, like a ton. So it, it really means a lot when people say that we're helping them out like that, like a couple of those reviews said. So once again, thank you guys very, very much. And uh, Jacob, you want to wrap this, this intro up and toss it over to Cuz? Yeah, yeah, again, uh, guys, we do appreciate it. Uh, like Andrew says, it does mean a lot to us. And, it, and the best thing is you're getting a lot of content for free that you don't have to pay for. Like if you're trying to go, you know, whether you want to pay for the outdoor channel, which might not be very relatable with where you're hunting or for magazines. So this is, you know, a media source that you can listen to that's free that you can get a lot of resources from that's really going to beneficial. Uh, be bit, I can't talk, man. Very <laughs> beneficial to you. Man, mouth's a little too dry. But once again, guys, Appreciate it. And again, we'll turn it over to Cuz and me uh, talking about hunter recruitment all the way up to the gar hole story to self-filming. All right, guys. And on the line, I have Cuz Strickland from Mossy Oak. Cuz, how are you doing today? I'm good, buddy. How are you doing? Doing excellent. Doing great. Again, it's a good touching base with you again uh, after this long turkey season that we had. I know you were extremely busy and it seems like you've been pretty busy this summer as well. But, uh, you know, for, again, <laughs> anyone that possibly does not know uh, who you are, which, again, it would be, be surprising, but j- just be respectful to them. Uh, how about you just give us a little uh, a little background on you again, uh, just so our listeners can kind of get a better feel for you, kind of get in what you're doing for a living, uh, again, what, you know, what region of the country you're from, and just a little bit about you, cuz. Okay, yeah, yeah, I'm, my official title is a senior VP at Mossy Oak. I've been here uh, about 31 years, got started about the same time Toxie did, but, you know, my, my roots are down in Natchez, Mississippi, which is kind of in the southwest corner. Uh, that's where I was born and raised, grew up hunting in the home of Shedham National Forest. So, I, you know, I have a soft heart, my, a soft place in my heart for anybody that hunts public land. That's all I have forever. But my dad was a lifelong military guy, finally retired, and he became the sports editor for our local newspaper and he had a hunting and fishing column he wrote on Sunday and I took that over when I was about 20, I don't know, maybe 20 years old, something like that and that's kind of where I got my start. 
right uh, or in the media thing. I mean, it was ended up getting syndicated around there a little bit. And, you know, in the early 80s, I went to work for Primos. I did their first videos, the Truth series, did those with Will. And uh, that's kind of where I started to be, I guess, recognized or whatever. But I always had a, a fatuation with the video aspect of it. To this day, I still do a lot of it. You know, I have a YouTube channel and do a lot of social media because I'm all about spreading the message. You know, I, deep down, you want everybody to, to love hunting as much as I do. That's not always possible, but... What a great medium, what great vehicles we have today. That's kind of the short version of where I came from. Well, that, that's something that, again, I can really relate with you on, uh, on the aspect of, you know, hunters and trying to get people to enjoy it as much as I do. Because uh, that, that's the thing that I think, especially somebody, uh, and I've seen this happen with uh, one of my uncles. He's got uh, three younger kids, two boys and a girl. And he, he, he's trying to get them into hunting. Uh, the oldest one is a sophomore in high school now. The youngest one, uh, my youngest cousin, she's going to be uh, in third grade this year. And he, he's a diehard hunter, and he's been trying to get them, you know, kind of addicted like he is. And they will go, but it's one of those things like they, they're not, like, over eager to go. And, and, right. and it's kind of sad to see that because he's such a dedicated guy. He's, uh, he's all about land management, managing our family farm and all this kind of stuff and doing everything right. And, I don't know why, uh, you know, maybe his kids have, or my cousins haven't taken it on to the extreme that say me and, uh, my, you know, my two uh, younger brothers and, you know, the rest of our family have. Uh, but that's, that's one thing that definitely I can relate with you on. But, you know, one thing I, I'd love to talk to you today about is, and especially we touch on public land, uh, is first of all, you know, a hot topic right now, which it, it's kind of a sad thing to see, but it's something that's prevalent right now is hunter recruitment is down. Um, you know, a couple different studies has showed that, you know, we're down a couple million hunters from where we were a decade ago and it's shown a trending, uh, fall with hunters. And that's one thing that I'm, I'm extremely passionate about is trying to get more people involved in the outdoors. What not, I mean, it doesn't even have to be hunters. I mean, as long as you're in the outdoors spending money for conservation, that, that's fine with me. Um, but you know, I, I know this spring, uh, you know, you took your grandson old cranky, uh, on, on some turkey hunts and it looked like he had a blast, but you know, trying to get someone involved at a young age, I think is huge for us. But y you know, in your opinion, I like first again, talk about hunter recruitment and what is something that the average guy can do to get someone new into hunting or the outdoors yeah. in general? Yeah, this is a long topic getting back to your uncle there, but I can probably tell you why his kids aren't as enthused about it as he is, is because their friends aren't as, as enthused about it. They, they, they may even be looked down, you know, in today's society at school and not many people hunt. And it's like, uh, that, that can, the, the peer pressure part of that can be pretty intense. That's, that's my personal thoughts on it. I, I'm blessed to live in a place where a lot of, a lot of the kids hunt and fish, you know, that, that go to school with my grandchildren. So it's not that big a deal, but the hunter recruitment thing is, you know, everybody has their own thoughts. You know, to me, it's not a battle against anti-hunters. It's not a battle against uh, the gun issues. To me, we're in, we're in a fight for time. You know, people are so busy nowadays. You stop and think, of, you know, a, an average family, maybe it's a mom and a dad and two kids, and he, he's working 40 or 50 hours a week, and he has a few hours on the weekend unless he has access really, really close and can go a little bit before 
the kids get stern or whatever, it's hard for him or her to make the time to do it. So I think it's more of just the, the, the way society is right now. I'm like Gene Winslow, and I'll quote him all the time. You know, hunting is not a sport. It's an instinct. We all have it. I've had a great look at that over the past 24 months or so. I've been helping my wife, who also works at Mossy Oak, and she deals with uh, furniture and stuff like that, the native living brands. I've been working with her at some of these furniture shows and stuff like that. And That's not a big hunting crowd, but they are all fascinated with what we do in that lifestyle so you know there is no easy answer the the only way to get people involved it's not like golf you can't go get a lesson for 30 minutes or 30 dollars you got to have kind of a mentor and unless you're willing to take that on the future is bleak uh, you know, I told you, I think I told you last time, but you stop and think if everybody that has a hunting license would take one person this coming year, that's never been, who's really interested in it and get them involved, bam, we double our numbers overnight. And it's not just kids, you know, there's lots of programs out there for kids and, you know, John Anoni's got the blueprint up there at Camp Compass, how to get kids involved. And, but it's, it's the older people because, you know, if you take a kid out of the house down the street, you take him hunting a few times, he gets hooked on it and all that. Well, he's stuck unless you're going to do that all the time. But if you get his dad or his mom or somebody and teach them, then they can take him. So, you know, the, the parents, the grown-ups, adults, they're, to me, they're the key because uh, right now it's kind of the perfect storm. Everybody's wanting to know where their food comes from and all that, but it's a task to teach people how to hunt, how to deal with game, you know, how to field dress and all that. But that's, to me, that's where it's going to have to come from is hunters like you that are passionate about it, put their boots on the ground and go find somebody and just do it one, one at a time. That's how you eat elephant, one bite at a time. Well, exactly. And that, that's something that I'm trying to take that step, and I did that last year, uh, getting a, a co-worker uh, very into hunting. He went from just being a huge fisherman and, you know, had a little drive to want to go hunting, but never really had the resources, never had someone to really take him, never really had a mentor, never really knew where to hunt or how to hunt, and I kind of took him under my wing and went on multiple different hunts with him, and he, he now I'll say he wasn't successful getting a deer, but he was absolutely hooked because I had a lot of close calls, saw a lot of animals. And that right there got him fired up where he went out. He was able uh, to purchase uh, his very first rifle. And uh, and now he's looking at hunting uh, hunting public land. That was another thing that you kind of talked about earlier in, your, in our intro was, you know, public land kind of is what got you started. I think that's one thing that we ought to touch on right now is, you know, a, a lot of people this day and age thinks that, you know, you have to have money to be able to hunt. You have to have you know, you have to have four or 500 acres on, on a lease or a club or something to be able to go hunting, especially in the South, because clubs and leases are just that popular. Um, but a lot of people don't realize, and you'd be amazed, which I'm sure you understand this, but you know, a lot of our listeners would be amazed on how many people don't understand 
public land, don't understand that you can hunt public land, and don't understand the resources that are out there for you. Uh, it's a lot easier once you kind of take that step back and you look at what resources are around you. Uh, like I just moved up here to Tennessee, uh, to Nashville, and I've got multiple, multiple uh, wildlife management areas reasonably close to me that I can hunt. And, and that's the thing. A lot of people get caught up on, I have no place to hunt. I actually had a guy, fun, funny uh, story, I had a guy, uh, he, he delivered a pizza over here at my residency uh, about a week ago. And we were talking and stuff, and I got talking to hunting on him. And he's like, yeah, you know, I, I'd love to go hunting. Uh, I've been a couple times, but I, I had no place to go. Like, you know, I don't have a farm or anything nearby. And, I, and he didn't even realize that there is, you know, over like 80,000 acres within an hour of him that he can go hunt. Um, so stuff like that. I think public land is something that we really need to touch on as, as like just the, the whole industry of hunting, just all hunters in general, whether, whether, you know, you work for a company that's in the hunting industry or you're an actual hunter that you're in the field all the time. That's one thing I think we need to touch on is public land, the resources that are there. And that's one way we can get new hunters in there at a very low cost. Cause you just have your, have your hunting license, maybe a wildlife management license and, and whatever weapon and just go out there and just, you know, have your adventure. And I think that's the thing that's going to really help people get addicted and really get caught up in our, uh, our passion for hunting, I think. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, these are the good old days. I, I, you know, people, I post stuff on social media all the time and people love the old photos and, back in the day and stuff like that and i tell them all the time i said make no mistake about it right now is the good old days when it comes to hunt uh wildlife managers are, are working on public land at, at a fevered pace you know and some of the best hunting around is on public land and people can always find that excuse you know oh, i can't do this i can't do that well you may never win them over mm -hmm. so that, that's why i try to personally go and and publicize a public hunt somewhere you know once or twice a year because it's great access now you know and tv's been one of the issues because sometimes i think people will focus on well, i gotta kill 150 or 60 80 inch deer or something like that well public ground ain't the best place to get that done but public ground's got some great hunt and you're right 90 i'd say 99 percent of it is all free you got to do a little boot work, you know, boot work. You got to go scout it and all that. But with, you know, Google Earth and Onyx and all that stuff, man, you can kind of pick spots you want to hunt without without doing too much of that. But if if people realized how good some of the public hunting is, you can kind of check the box where that ain't a reason. There's some other underlying reason they're not going. But uh, public land, it may be frowned upon, like, uh you know, it's anybody can hunt that. Well, man, that's where you cut your teeth. That's where you really learn how to hunt. And uh, there's, I don't know how I many, you know, they're blessed out west to have BLM and all that way more than we do. But there's plenty of wildlife management areas. I went to North Dakota and hunted on nothing but a, w, a couple of WMAs a year before last. Had the, one of the best deer hunts I've ever been on. It's just People are driving by and thinking, I'm not going there. I'm going I'm to go worry about this farm. And that's cool. And that's part of trying to kill a big deer. But access it will always be an issue. But it's it's not a big issue as, I, like I say, the time factor. Yeah, and I, I can agree with that. Again, that's one of those things that uh, I, I think the access is, an, is something that you know, might just be ignorance. Uh, you know, not saying someone's ignorant, but just them not looking for finding a place to go hunt 
and they get caught up on, yes, the time because, you know, especially if you have a family. That, that's why I can really, uh, again, talking to, to like a later onset uh, new hunter, you know, someone that possibly has a family, wife, kids, everything, or or even or even a, a female, a woman of that age that wants to get into hunting that has, again, family, husband, all that kind of stuff, is that time away from your family to try to go hunting. That's something that a lot of people can't really justify, especially if you're new to it and you don't already have that fire burning uh and maybe you might not even have support from your family uh, to go hunt, uh, which I've seen kind of that happen before with a couple a couple people I know where maybe their spouse wasn't a big fan of it, or again their kids weren't a big fan of it. But you know their friends is who got them into hunting, and that's kind of who kind of helped them you know with that fire to really kind of work on it. Um, because I mean, like you said, you know time is everything. I mean, none of us have enough time today to do what we want. Uh, I mean, even if you try to. Uh, you know, use your time as efficiently as possible. You know, we all wish we could have more time today because, you know, once a day goes by, you're not getting that day back. Uh, and, and a lot of people I, I can see maybe not being able to justify going out in the woods for, you know, four, five, six, seven hours, ever how long, especially on public land, and really can justify being out there that long away from, you know, their family. Yeah, it's tough. And, you know, I, I had girls, I've got some grandsons now, but. When my girls were little and coming up, I, I didn't. Yeah, I wanted them to go and share my time outdoors, so I took them when they were little because they wanted to hang around with dad and all. But I, I didn't have any visions of them being great hunters. But you know what I wanted them to understand is number one, where meat comes from, and number two, I wanted them to be able to understand the lingo around the supper table, you know, and and just have a grasp on it because at some point maybe in your future i don't know if i'll live to see it there there'll probably be a referendum on a voting booth one day about hunting and you know it's that middle that middle core you got to worry about because there's however many hunters 15 million or whatever probably that many people adamantly oppose but that group in the middle is the one that you know you want to make sure they understand that it's a good thing Mm -hmm. uh you know i wrote a one of the newspaper columns i wrote early on was about how hunters are kind of betrayed to the public. Back in the day, nobody really cared because just pretty much everybody hunted. But I wrote a column one time about, you know, don't put the deer on the hood of your truck, drive through town, and don't wear your camel into the liquor store. Just point after point after point. And, man, I got more hate mail from that. Of course, it's pre-internet, but it was just like, it upset everybody. Well, it's, you know, it's 2018. It's a new day. And you, you do have to assume that people are watching you and how hunters act is a big deal. And, uh, you throw the gun issue in there with it. So, you know, then we're all being stared at and judged and everything else. So how hunters conduct themselves is a big deal to, to me. And there's no question there the best conservations, the first conservation, pretty much the only conservationists out there that spend money to make sure there is WMAs and plenty of game and trapping and relocating and stuff like that. I still occasionally run into someone that will be, you know, anti-hunting or, or a vegan, whatever. And I'll, I, I, not long ago, I was in an airport. I, I can't remember what it was, and this lady just... I had camo bagged there or something, and it turned to hunting, and she just kind of went off for a little bit. And at the end of the thing, I was like, hey, I understand. How long have you been a vegan? Well, I'm not. I said, okay. Well, it's okay for somebody to shoot your cattle in the head with a wooden stake with an air gun, but you don't want me shooting an elk 
that my family eat on for two seasons. Well, that's different. Sometimes, and that's what, that was her reaction. Well, that's that's different. Sometimes you can't even you know reason with people who don't want to be reasoned with. But still, we have to act a certain way and do certain things. And more importantly than that, these days is sharing your time. It gets back to. Hey, you know, I, I can do one, one, one person at a time, and that'll make a, a big, big difference. Because a group, there's no denying the numbers are down. And it's not that hunting's under attack or anything else. Again, it gets back to where we live and how we live today. You know, it's, uh, it's the society we live in. I'm doing my grandkids the same way I did my children. I want them exposed to it in every way, shape, or form. Now, at some point, they'll make up their own mind, but at least I imprinted them with, you know, as Ted Nugent says, what we do is perfect. It really is. It's no different than a, a row crop farmer or somebody else. It's a renewable resource. It's wonderful protein, and I want them to understand that it's okay to do it. And if their buddies don't, I still think, just like your uncle, I think his kids will come back to it at some point. Because there gets to be a certain age when you don't worry about what's cool as much as you do what's right. Yeah, and actually, I'm glad you kind of brought that back up because I was going to agree with you on that. I think that was, you know, you said earlier that it's probably a lot of has to do with them not getting, you know, as you know, passionate for it is probably because of friends and all that kind of stuff. Because I'll say the school that they go to, uh, just after meeting a couple of their friends, definitely I could see that. You know, hunting is nothing they probably talk about. Uh, it's mostly probably video games and sports. Um, so I think that that is huge. And then also, you know, kind of touching on the whole food aspect of it. That, that's something that I think, you know, all of us hunters are passionate about is that food aspect of, you know, we're hunting something. Yes, we're taking something's life, but we're feeding, you know, ourselves and our family with it. And a lot of people, again, I always, this, I always bring the same uh, thought that you did to that woman in the airport that, you know, if you eat meat, Someone has to kill that animal. You just don't have to have blood in your hands. Well, I like to know where my animal comes from, understand that I took its life, and understand that I am I am passionate about that animal and protecting it and protecting the, the meat itself also to be able to feed me and my family. So that is something that I, normally if you bring that up to people, you know, they kind of come off, oh, yeah, that's different. But it, it really isn't. I mean, someone to eat meat, something has to die. I mean, it is it's the way of life. Something has to die. Whether you do it, you take part in it or not, that doesn't matter, but you're eating a dead animal. Um, so that, that is something I think a lot of people try to like separate. They separate that whole meat aspect with the actual animal it came from. And again, with hunters, we have that all integrated to the same thing. So we understand everything about that animal, uh, which to me is extremely important. And I think that's one thing that has got a lot of hunters, a lot of new people interested in hunting, whether they've actually gone hunting or they, they just, they find it fascinating um, that, you know, they, that hunters understand where the food's coming from. They understand them. You cannot get more organic than a white tailed deer or an elk or pronghorn or anything that's been living out there, uh, on, you know, free roam. Um, so that is something I think that's really got a lot of people interested in is that whole food aspect. And I've actually, uh, I, I can't remember if I heard another podcast or if it was on a TV show, but they actually had somebody on that. That's what got them interested in it. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't, you know, quote unquote, the trophy or killing something that really got him interested. It was understanding that you cannot get more organic meat than a wild animal. Uh, and that was something that really kind of got them interested. And that's one reason I think that that individual got hooked. And I think that's something that we can relate with a lot of other people that, you know, if you truly do care about where your meat's coming from and all that, you need to try hunting. Yeah. The, uh, 
the people at the QMA have a wonderful program going on right now. They'll fill the fort. Uh, I mean, you go, you can, if you want to learn about that kind of stuff, you can literally go to the QDMA website. They've got a, a hunting 101, a how to get started. Their website's phenomenal. But on their field, field to fork program, they, they've actually been setting up at these farmers markets, different places throughout the U.S., some in the Northeast, some in the South, wherever. And that, well, they're having, selling the vegetables and all. They're, they're, they're preparing venison and offering free samples and and to the to the person everybody loves the venison they'll start a conversation oh do you hunt no would you like to get started and they'll have one of their internet pieces printed out and they they'll take 10 people at a time on these field to fork programs and introduce them and they've had unbelievable retention with people learning on their they, they do a two-day deal Hopefully it ends in them bagging a critter, showing them everything. But they, the reason they got into it or agreed to get into it was from the food aspect. So hats off to them for trying to find a grassroots program that will work. And food is certainly the number one way to do it in this world we live in today. Exactly. And that's something that I think people can get more passion on that aspect than anything else is under the sustainable that food aspect. But that brought up another point I wanted to talk about was just hunter retention. Because it's one thing to recruit a bunch of people, but if you can't retain any of them, then it, you're not really doing much good for us. It's a short term. You help us out short term, but long term, it's not helping out the situation. Um, when it comes to hunter retention and keeping someone just interested in hunting and continue to buy license, continue to spend money for conservation. Do you have any idea or do you have any concept of that that is something that possibly could work out for us across the nation? Um, since I know that is another issue with, you know, people that are, you know, getting up into, getting up in age that are either leaving hunting because of health issues or just, you know, other, other stuff like that. You know, what is one way we can really retain the hunters we have now and these new hunters we're bringing on? Yeah, well, going back to the QDMA, what their retention was the highest with people who actually harvested an animal because it was all about the food. Once they figured out, hey, I can do this, I can field dress this thing, even if they just took it to somebody else to have it processed, or if they figured out how to, you know, debone it themselves, or whatever, the food part of it's what got the highest retention level. The people that were successful in harvesting a deer and took it all the way from, like I said, from field to fork, those continued to come back. So the driving force, and, you know, if you think back, maybe maybe not you, but, I mean, that's the way I justified everything when I was very young, just getting out on my own, didn't have any money, and the justification for hunting for me was all about the venison. Still loved to eat it. I mean, between... My extended family will eat six, eight deer a year easy. And I'm always like, you know what? That saves a ton of money. So the retention factor to me is going to come from trying to figure out how to show somebody how to be successful. And I don't mean killing a giant deer. That means successfully harvesting the meat, putting it on the table and having your family, showing them how to prepare it the whole nine yards. Now, that's a tall, tall order, but... Again, numbers don't lie. The highest retention factor, working on what the QDMA has been doing for two years, came from people who actually harvested the deer and got it home. 
Yeah, and I can I can agree with that. I mean, it's like anything. Like when you're starting out doing anything, whether it's a new job, uh, you got a new career, uh, you're in sports or something like that. It, you know, growing up, you know, having success early on always kind of set the set the uh, momentum for you for a long term success. Because if you're not successful early on, you either lose interest or you, you lose faith in what you're doing, and you'll kind of fall off. And I, I think that's something that definitely has affected a lot of people. That you know, they take someone out hunting. And they don't have success in, in a reasonably uh, amount of time, uh, whether it's one season or what, whatever it was. And they kind of like lose interest. Like, oh, yeah, hunting is cool and everything, but it seems too difficult. It, it seems kind of outside my reach. And, you know, I'm, I'm not good enough to be a hunter. Uh, and like you said, I think that's something that is absolutely huge that, you know, to be able to get someone success early on very quickly. And again, show them everything about the animal when it comes to field dressing it, processing it, especially if you're a guy like myself, which I do pretty much all my processing except for grinding and uh, sausage and uh, showing someone that aspect and understanding the whole food and kind of why, why you're processing, a, a, you know, a deer, elk or whatever it is, kind of explain, you know, what what part of this meat will go for like what meal and actually kind of talk about some of the meals you want to cook with this. I think something that really interests them and it starts getting their mind thinking like, oh, man, yeah, we could do chili. Oh, we could do spaghetti. Oh, we could have steaks and, you know, we could have different roasts and all, all kinds of stuff that really kind of will get them excited about that food aspect as well. But unless you have an, another topic or you want to talk about a little bit more about either hunter recruitment or hunter retention, I'd love to change to a couple other topics as well. Yeah, I'm with you, man. I'm, you asked me early on about what I've been doing this summer and, you know, I'm blessed now to have a little farm. I didn't have one forever. And, uh, so, and, you know, now my, my, my role has changed. Uh, you know, I said this, I said this three decades ago, I've heard it requoted a bunch of times, but, uh, a hunter goes through four stages. The first stage is they just want to get one and that can be whatever they, they've picked out a turkey or an elk or deer, whatever. And the second stage is they want to get as many as they can possibly get their hands on. They just kind of go crazy for a little while. And the, the third stage is they want to be selective and get the big one. They want to have the giant deer, or the you know, whatever, the big elk. But, it, but the fourth stage kind of just becomes that's who you are. You're Now you're identified as that guy who loves to hunt, loves to teach and do all that. And I've, I've kind of become, you know, amazed and fascinated with the food plot thing. My, uh, not just food plots, but deer and food. Uh, you know, my farm's not really big. I got three grandsons and a granddaughter, my wife, youngest daughter. They all will go hunting. So I have to kind of really work hard to keep deer on my place. And my goal from the outset was not to grow a giant deer. My, my, my goal was to have a target-rich environment so they can all see critters every time they go. So that's kind of a year-round deal but i've become more involved in that than anything it's like food plots i spent a lot of time this summer kind of pre-doing food plots because my time's limited and uh you know i kind of let them go after deer season because you got there's certain times of the year when you know that grass is at the right height you just let turkey poults if you're blessed to have go through there it's a good place for them to catch bugs and so I've been doing mine in stages. Once I, you know, after turkey season, a month later, I'll start. I have my own process. I go in and mow them and let the let them green up, and then I'll I'll spray them to get that grass, whatever new grass.
grass is coming up dead. Just let them sit. Because it may just be a weekend I have to plant those food plots. But, you know, put them in strategic places, kind of in the middle. And uh, I've learned big time that you got to have sanctuaries where it may not be the ideal habitat. My place doesn't have the ideal habitat. It may be planted pine plantation. It's kind of getting tall, but never go i never go in there i have food plots around them and even though that cover is not as thick as you think whitetails would use man they stay in there all the time because nobody ever goes in there so my summers are filled with ice this weekend i got just enough time to go do this it may be mow the plot it may be spray the plot it may be go ahead and i generally pop up those uh portable blinds real early because these deer down here as you well know are are just evil they ain't gonna put up with it <laughs> they uh they see a pop-up blind they 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 avoid that thing at all costs so i'll put those up pretty soon and and i still go ahead and kind of brush them in and just make sure they're there but summers are a good time to do that it keeps you outdoors i have more fun with them grandkids checking trail cameras they love to do that i taught them all how to uh turn it off take the sd card out put a new one in and they'll go back and look and look and look. And, yeah, they're they're little kids who watch TV, and they're looking for a big buck pop. Can I hunt that one? But you know what? They're outside. They're not on the Xbox. They're not playing, you know, Fortnite or whatever it is. They're, they're outside doing stuff that's really cool. So summer's a, kind of an important time where back in the day it meant nothing to me because I was just hunting you know, acorn trees and bedding areas and creek crossings on public ground. Well, now I'm trying to build some of those things. Now, I'd like to talk about that for a second, but one thing I'm going to touch on that you said is about the whole grind blind thing in the South. Yeah, I can 100% relate with you. Yeah, deer will pick that sucker out in a heartbeat. If you put it out two or three, four or five days before you're going to go hunt, yeah, that's that's not that's not that's not going to happen. That ain't going to get it. It's not going to happen, especially on public land. I did that one time on public land. That was the worst decision of my entire hunting career. Uh, yeah. Those deer, I mean, you try to brush it in, they're like, why is there a brush? I'm guessing they're thinking, why is there a random brush pile sitting there that was not there yesterday or two days ago? Um, yeah. but one thing I'd like to talk about now is since, you know, you brought up your property, uh, first let me ask you, how long have you owned the property? 12 years. Okay. And, and it was pretty much a cow pasture when I bought it. I immediately planted pines and, you know, did some other things and it's grown up nicely now, but it was basically just open ground when I bought it. So, well, let's talk, I would like to talk about that for a second is, you know, once you did buy the property, what did you, first of all. Tell, tell, tell us what you do that first year and a half, roughly, to the property. And then now, and then tell us after you do that, what would you have changed now, knowing what you know now? Would you have done anything different that first year and a half? Yeah, the first year and a half, it, when I bought it, it had 168 head of cows on it. So <laughs> it, was, it was pretty beat down, and it was all pasture, except for ditch banks. You know, it had some pretty oak trees along the ditches. They, they, of course... Even when they timber something down here, you know, there's regulation streams, side management zones and stuff like that. But my first priority was cover. So, I, you know, I took what little budget I had left and put it in. I decided to do pines because, number one, they're, they're great deer cover in like three years. That was my goal. And I didn't get a picture of a deer for the first year or two. But once those pine trees got up to about, you know, belt height and then shoulder height which doesn't take long in the south 
man, the deer started coming in there because I, I planted, I had a topo map and I planted the food plots where I kind of have some good south wind spots and some good north wind spots, but mostly in the middle and places where I could access them without too much trouble. It was, it was kind of a blank canvas. So my, my whole, there was already some ponds there. So my whole deal was uh, cover and creating some sanctuaries. I can't stress that enough because a lot of people think a sanctuary is a giant cutover or a gigantic thicket. That's not necessarily the case. We've killed some fairly nice deer out there that I had pictures of that just stayed there. And I know the fawns that are born there stay there. They got everything they need, food, water, places where they don't get disturbed. So my sanctuaries may be little, but again, unless somebody shot a deer that ran up in there or something, we never go in them. So you can pull it off on small tracts of land with no with no problem. But my whole deal the first year and a half was getting them some bedding cover. They got to have that. Now, is there anything that you would have changed knowing what you know now back then, or would you still have done the exact same thing as you did? Uh, you know, I, I probably would have planted a few more trees. I wanted, you know, I had aspirations. There was a real pretty place down at the bottom <clears throat> on the south side. I was like, golly, I could build a really good dove field there or I could do this, or maybe if I could uh, lease it to a farmer. Looking back, I wish I went ahead and, and maybe planted those, mm-hmm. and and so I'd have more bedding area. But looking on it now, it's like, you know, I, I got some pretty good bedding areas. Probably right now is the time to go ahead and, if I'm going to plant some more trees, do it now, so there'll be different stages. You know, because at some point, the pines I got will be too big for deer to go out and use it for a bedding area. So, you know, looking back, I, I think I made some good decisions. And I had Toxie Hayes, who's, I'm telling you, the best gamekeeper I've ever seen, I've ever been around. He knows more about trees and seed and chemical and all that. And he kind of helped me lay that out on the front end. So I, I think I, I did some pretty good pretty good decisions on the front end. So, Okay, perfect. Now, when did you uh, kind of th- – when did you really get started with uh, food plotting on that property? Was that something that, again, kind of happened kind of quickly, or did you kind of wait a little while and then really kind of get highly involved with doing food plots? Because, I mean, been keeping up with you lately, it seems like you really got a lot of plots that you're trying to get in right now uh, with a couple of these rainstorms. Yeah, I, I kind of, when I first started, I, I, I didn't plant any food plots, but I, I planted the pines leaving places for the food plots. There was maybe one or two spots uh, to the north, yeah, to the north of me, where I leased that little piece of land, and I said, "Man, I could get in there and clear one of those out." And it was more of a bush hog thing, and it ended up maybe a quarter to a half acre, a couple of spots. But the rest of them, where I'd plant the trees, I'd leave, you know, a long narrow spot or this and that. So I kind of planned my food plots out. Uh, when I was putting the trees down for cover, but I didn't really have any food plots for the first year or two, maybe one or two. But, yeah, they didn't get visited any hardly at all because there just wasn't any cover around. I mean, if you hadn't got deer nearby, you just ain't going to get them in your food plots. Now they they come into all the food plots because there's cover right up to the edge. Now, one thing that you've kind of said that I can really relate with is – what your property seemed to be like when you purchased it, being that cattle pasture. Uh, our family farm, which is in central Alabama in Bibb County, um, my uncle was giving it to him uh, from my great-grandfather uh, as a as a, uh, a birthday gift slash will. 
and it was pretty it was all cattle pasture uh, my great-grandfather had a bunch of black angus cattle uh he sold off a decent amount of his property and left about 100 acres uh, uh to my uncle and the first thing he did he planted pines and he did again kind of strategically plant them thinking about where he'd want food plots later on and uh he did that and he told me the same thing like once he got started deer the deer population wasn't great or as in like you know he wasn't seeing a lot of deer on the property but once that once the pines did get to you know that two three-year-old mark again being the south pines grow extremely fast with our long growing season and uh you know start seeing a lot better deer and and now he, we've already been able to harvest uh harvest the timber off the property once uh he, and it's already been replanted and uh it, it's been absolutely phenomenal how you can change this old cattle pasture into prime deer habitat to really be able to hold a lot of deer, especially on a smaller size property. Cause I think that's something that's really relatable with a lot of people is, you know, not everyone has either the funding or just the, the resources to be able to have, you know, a couple thousand acres or even a thousand acres uh, or even 500 acres. I mean, a lot of people, especially in the South, you, you meet and talk to a lot of people that have, you know, 50 acres, 60 acres, maybe a hundred acres. And they want to know what they can do on a property that size to be able to hold a lot of deer and also get a lot of opportunities. Because like you said, if you have a target rich environment, first of all, you're going to have more fun hunting out there. And second of all, if you have a family and friends and everything, they're going to enjoy it even more because there's going to be a lot more deer on the property that you're going to be able to see. Um, so I think that's extremely huge that uh, a lot of people kind of can relate with. Uh, and I think they kind of get all tied up on, uh, you know, kind of just leave it the way it is and just trying to uh, bait deer and do whatever they have to do to try to get deer on their property. Yeah, I mean, if you, if you if you can't deal with pine trees, you just can't hunt in the southeast. I mean, they're everywhere. It just is what it is, and not a lot of food up in there. You can open the canopies up and do that kind of stuff. But, you know, to me, it goes back to, you know, the sanctuaries and, and, and having food available for them. Yeah, you know, I don't think deer range that far. They may move a little bit more during the rut. And, you know, I, deep down, and I've seen this in 12 years out there, if you can just have everything just like you want, your odds of killing a big deer go up. Because I think the older they get, the less they move. I think they get lazy, they get stiff, whatever it is. And if you can have all those things in place, you know, you're they'll show up. You know, they're especially during the during the rut. But that part of being a gamekeeper is uh, is the fun part and sharing it. That's why again, the target rich environment. I'll, I bring lots of people out there, and if they can harvest, and I can't tell you how many people killed their first deer out there. It was three or four last year, and it was a, a doe, a big doe, and they got to do the whole, you know, field dress it, carry it up there, and show them the whole deal. But I'm pretty, uh, I'm pretty confident that I'm gonna have somebody an opportunity at a deer, and very seldom do we even talk about big bucks. I, I may get them fired up, say, man, there's. We saw a big buck here two weeks ago, but, you know, this has got way too many does in it. And you get them fired up, get them thinking on the front end, hey, this is about the the food aspect of this thing. And that's what I do. I kind of, I, I try to cook maximum amount of food on whatever land I got available and keep them close. So. All right, well, perfect. Well, I'd like to uh, switch switch uh, topics again on you, uh, something that I'm kind of interested in. I know you talked about and, you know, you kind of have a passion about is first of all, uh, is, is your outdoor writing, uh, kind of how you got started with everything with that. Uh, first of all, what got you into, you know, do outdoor writing and what tip would you have for someone starting out that maybe they want to get into writing? Uh, maybe they already have some publications in some smaller, 
magazines, but maybe they want to take that next step. Uh, I mean, what advice would you give to somebody like that? Man, I probably I'm probably the last guy on the planet to give anybody advice. The, the way I got, you know, I barely passed. I, I got out of high school by the skin of my teeth. Now you're talking about if I had a redo, I'd pay way more attention in the English class, and because. When my dad, he had an outdoor column, like I said, he was the sports editor. He, 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 my dad was a really good writer, and he had this, uh, his little column on Sundays called Roving Around Outdoors. And, uh, I forgot at his age, he, I think he was like in his mid-60s, he was still doing that, and he developed an eye disease where he eventually lost his sight. He couldn't do it anymore, and he's like, man, you should take it over because – I had an older brother, but he loved to fish. He didn't hunt much. And uh, he said it's only, you know, 500 words or something. And I can remember the first three or four columns that I turned in, the guy at the newspaper said they used to, like, they would stop what they were doing when I'd bring my column in just to read it and laugh because it had so many misspelled words and stuff in it. But you know what? I knew what I was talking about, and I got better at grammar. And, uh, but I, I was convinced early on that people want to be entertained. You can, you can tell them all the things you want to know about how to, how to, how to, but if you can make it entertaining, they're going to read it. Same way with doing a, a talk or a seminar or something like that. People, they want to be entertained and that's not that hard to do. Now, some people are able to do that. Some are not, uh, you know, in the, the, the world we live in today, I mean, there's so many vehicles to deliver media. It's really, really hard to break in. Uh, ratings on television shows are down a little bit. You know, a lot of magazines, newspapers have, have just closed their businesses because there's so much information available. So if I, if I was to give a young person some advice, it would be to absolutely tackle every aspect of social media figure out how to how to how to number one figure out how to write and be entertaining it's the same thing pick out something you really 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 love and don't just try to cover everything you know be a be a specialist maybe it's archery maybe it's turkeys maybe it's whatever it is waterfowl pick that one thing out get really good at it figure out how to tell your story while you're being entertaining and 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 be, become a master on where to place it and how to get it read because the, the people that are doing really good now in social media are the ones that have a lot of views. I mean, that's not rocket science. And to get views, you kind of got to stand out. So, you know, know how to take a photo, know how to how to frame that thing up, how to do better than the next person. You know, if you got a, a, a deep desire to do that, there's nothing they can hold you back. It's just the vehicles and the media is changing so fast. You got to really be on top of that. I see that on a daily basis. You know, I've been in the business a long, long, long time, and I still deal with CEOs of companies who ask me about social media because I've got a lot of it, not to the point of where I'm that famous, but I've got lots of followers on Instagram and I've got a YouTube page and all that. And I'll say, look, dude, if you're asking me, you're in trouble. Well, you need to go to the nearest college and find an intern that's 19 years old or 20 years old who's doing everything, Instagram, Snapchat, and all that, and let them teach you 
about social media because that's 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 kind of where all the messaging is coming from. But if I had to give somebody some advice right now, it would be to specialize. It would be pick out something that you love more than anything, whatever that topic is, and become the best at that. Not not just writing and telling that story, but also photography as well. Okay, and another question I'd like to ask you, and this is coming from both me, Andrew, and actually quite a few of our listeners that are getting into filming or already film. Uh, you know, you have quite a lot of experience on filming. What advice would you give to someone that's getting new into outdoor filming uh, when it comes to the production side, along with just the pure uh, being a good filmmaker uh, for going out there and really be able to document uh, hunts and really what they're doing? Well, you know, when I started, uh, with, with the first year I shot something for Primos, I was using a, a in-studio television camera that had a three-quarter inch tape and a three-quarter inch tape. This this monstrosity rig weighed way over 80 pounds. And back then, there wasn't any, hardly anybody doing it. So if you got any video at all, it was like, man, that's, that's, that's just earth-shattering. I had a... <laughs> Uh, it's a different way they're judged by it now. Uh, the stuff we use now, I use, I got a couple of GoPro, uh, Hero 5s and I've rigged a microphone on them and I, uh, I'm fixing to do a YouTube video about that. And I got one small, uh, Sony camera. I think it's a Sony. It's an AX33. I think it's a Sony. It may be a Canon, but anyway... And they all, all four, all three of those cameras shoot in 4K. So the, the quality is unbelievable. It just blows my mind because I used to carry gigantic stuff that shot in like 360 and then went up to 420 and 78. But anyway, I, you know, there's people have gotten so good at filming hunts. It's just like, hmm, another 180 inch deer got shot with a bow and arrow right over the shoulder. Now that, that's an awesome feat. But you see it every night on TV on three channels, 24 hours a day. And to me, again, it gets back to who's the best storyteller. Because for and I'll I'll never forget this when when Hunting the Country moved from TNN, which was before your time, to ESPN, I had to go up there and I had all these TV people surrounding me, telling me what to do. And I was I was looking at those people going, I don't know anything about hunting. And those people were looking at me going. That guy, that redneck, don't know anything about TV. And the deal is we were both correct in those assumptions. But they, at some point, one of these guys who graduated from the Berkeley Film School just kind of pounded his fist on the table. He said, give me a reason to root for the guy. Tell me the story. He said, your show comes on, the guy's in a tree stand, deer walks out. He said, who is the guy? How did he get there? Why did he pick that and, you know, that all that stuff kind of stuck with me. And it's like, I've always told the guys that worked under me, and the TV's moved at Mossy Oak NASA in the marketing department. I'm doing other stuff, which is fine, because that is a lot of work. But I used to tell them, you're, you're missing everything that's good because your camera's never on. The stuff that people really get a kick out of or want to know about is happening before the hunt starts stuff around the camp, the, the, the advice, you know, the how did I get there, what steps did I go through. So I always tell people to shoot 10 times more than you think you should shoot 
and then edit out what you don't really think is good. The more you got to pick from, the better it's going to be. Uh, some people are good on camera and some people are not. But the more you tell a story, the more likely you are to catch them at the front end and keep them to the back end. So don't just focus on this is the perfect camera, camera angle to kill that deer. Teach me something along the way. Introduce me to that person. Find a character. I used to tell the guys when they were traveling, if they're going to film a guy hunting a mule deer in wherever, Colorado, I said, if that guy's boring, focus on the guide. Or if the guide won't talk, focus on the town. Give me something that's historical. Give me, Tell me a story about what's going on other than the hunt. And you may bring some more people in. So, I, you know, bottom line is to shoot more than you think. Don't spend a ton of money on your camera here because it's all good now. Everything that we're putting out on my YouTube channel now and the social media, my youngest daughter, she edits on a laptop, left-handed, can do it in minutes. The technology's so good now. Everything's on a little tiny SD card. and But I give her way more than she needs. I'll give her two hours worth of stuff from three cameras. She makes a nine-minute piece. But it's good stuff. You know, it's entertaining, just like the the cranky chronicles we shot during turkey season i was taking the camera along just because that's what i do and uh that youngest grandson of mine ben we call him cranky ended up being like a social media sensation people went nuts over him because he didn't care if the camera was there or not and i told the story of cranky every time we went so you never know what's going to click with people my advice is to shoot more than you think you need so all right, perfect. I mean, I, I I can see how that could be effective because you you can always edit something out, but you can't add to it after it's been done, especially on a hunt. Uh, right. So yeah, I, I can see how getting a lot of extra content is going to be better for you. Now to finish off this uh, this episode, I have one listener question uh, that they wanted to ask, uh, and, and the question is is actually for you to tell a story, and I'm actually not familiar with this story, so maybe you can educate me on it. The story of the gar hole. Um, yeah. Uh, do you mind just touch on that real quick? Uh, we had a couple of different no, listeners asking about that. No, I, you know, that's become, that's kind of common phrase you hear people say now, but, uh, I actually wrote a column about that back in the, oh my gosh, would have been the late seventies, early eighties and coined that phrase. And my, my, you know, I've got three books out on turkey hunting, the truth, the whole truth and nothing just the truth. But I'm about two thirds of the way down with the fourth book, which is called Gar Holes. But anyway, I had a buddy that I grew up with and he's been, he was one of the turkey thugs. He's a good friend of mine. name's Bubba Bruce. And Bubba and I grew up hunting together. We grew up together, period, from elementary school on up. But, and uh, we never had a great place to hunt. And we had found this place. We're both living in Natchez. And we had found this place down the river, and it was some school section land. And a school section is like 660 acres or something. I forgot. It's a certain measurement, and this land is set aside, and, it, you know, whatever income comes from it goes to the school. But anyway, it's called school section land, and it was public, kind of hard to get to. And uh, Bubba went and scouted it first, and I went and scouted it. And he called me one day, and he said, and uh, we were always playing tricks on each other. But he said he had found the, the most unbelievable deer crossing he'd ever seen. And I said, where is it? And I had scouted before. He gave me really good directions. And he said, now, he said, I tied a piece of a white T-shirt onto a, 
I don't remember what kind of tree it was, probably a hackberry, but he said, you got to climb that tree and be in there before daylight. You ain't going to believe what you're going to see. So I felt like I could find that spot. So I went really, really, really early. And school section laying along the river was just nasty. It would flood and recede, flood and recede. But for whatever reason, wildlife loves it. Anyway, I make my way down in there, and he says, go to the north end of the slough, do this. And it took me about an hour, but I finally found it. And it was kind of, it was just great enough where I could see maybe 10 feet in front of me now. So I quickly hooked my climbing stand to that tree with a piece of white T-shirt hanging on it. This was before bright eyes or any of that stuff. But anyway, I got up that tree, and I was sweating by then because this was October, and it was pretty hot down here. And the whole time I was trying to get at that tree, quite as I could, I could hear water splash. And I went, my God, the deer coming by, and I can't even see him. <laughs> and just kept hearing that and hearing that and hearing that. Finally, I got up, got my bow up, got everything just like I wanted. And I, as I sat still, my eyes started focusing to my terrain and my surroundings. You know how it does when you're first up in the tree stand. And then I could make out rippling in the water. And I was like, I ought to be able to see those deer. Well, when I finally could see what it was, it was a big pool of water where it receded over a bank and there was a big pool of water left there and it had kind of dry landed or dry landlocked a bunch of gar. There was must have been 150 or 200 gar lifting that thing and they'd swim back to that end because that's where they kind of came in trying to get out. And uh, that's where the term gar hole. Bubba put me in a gar hole thinking that was really funny. <laughs> and... Uh, so every time we got put in a bad place, I would say, yeah, you gar hold me again. But that's that's exactly the story of how the gar hold came to be. So okay. It was a joke on from Bubba Bruce. Okay, perfect. Yeah, no, that sounds like a great practical joke to put on a, on a hunting <laughs> buddy. I, I would be extremely confused with that situation. <laughs> yeah, I was fired up when I was hearing that water splash. I'm like, man, them deer, I know there was a cornfield back behind me about seven, 800 yards. I'm like, man, there's... There's just a migration going on. You know, I was just so excited. Oh. And then when I saw what was going on, I was pretty upset. <laughs> awesome, awesome. That was perfect. Well, because I think I've taken enough of your time today. I, I do appreciate you coming on. Uh, it's been a great episode. Uh, first of all, very entertaining. And, you know, a lot of knowledge we kind of were able to talk about, uh, both on hunter recruitment, hunter retention. This is kind of what you've been up to lately. So I do appreciate your time coming on for that. Uh, and again, uh, best of luck with you for the rest of your summer and your food plots. Hopefully you get some rain, uh, relatively soon for you guys. Uh, I've been trying to keep up with you. It doesn't look like the rain's really wanting to come close to the farm, but, uh, anyways, I hope, I hope that goes well for you and we'll stay in touch throughout this fall and, uh, hopefully you have an excellent fall. Well, Jacob, thank you very much. I'll keep you posted on the rain 39 days and count without any, but you know, eventually it will rain and i appreciate you calling anytime i can uh, i can come on your podcast i'll be glad to i hope you have a great fall brother
All right, guys, we're starting to get kind of close to summer here. And you know what my favorite part about summer is? The Mobile Hunters Expo. Y'all heard us talk about it a lot last year, and we actually got to meet a lot of you guys at that expo. Well, we're excited to announce we're going to be there again. This time it's going to be in Dalton, Georgia, June 28th through June 30th. We are going to be there all three days. We're going to have a bunch of past podcast guests there. We're going to have a booth where you can come by and grab some merchandise. And I'm sure we're going to be recording all kinds of podcasts there. If you're unfamiliar, the Mobile Hunters Expo is the place you need to be if you are the kind of hunter that listens to this podcast. This show was literally made for you. It is an excellent group of people that are going to be there. A lot of whitetail killers from around the southeast are going to be there. You're going to get to talk to them, shake their hand, learn from them in person, make some connections. And guys, we get a lot of questions about Uh, Which saddle should I get? Which tree stand should I get? What about this piece of gear? What about that piece of gear? How do I meet other hunters who want to hunt the same way that I do? You know, finding a good hunting buddy. The Mobile Hunters Expo is a place for all of that. So you guys don't miss it. June 28th through the 30th, Dalton, Georgia. We'll see you there.